So Money Episode 15, J.D. Roth. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day to all of you. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Now, for all of you listeners out there who enjoy following all the different financial bloggers out there, and I'm a big fan of the financial blogging community, today's guest will be quite the treat. I've got one of the very first money bloggers on the show, someone who's actually been called the grandfather of financial blogging, although he's far from old. His name is J.D. Roth. Now, J.D. started the award-winning blog, GetRichSlowly.com. He started this back in 2006, can you believe it or not. It's a site that Money Magazine has named the web's most inspiring personal finance blog. And Get Rich Slowly, since it started, has grown now into an active community with thousands of readers every month sharing ideas on how to improve their financial lives. And J.D. today, he is an author also of Be Your Own CFO. It's a guide and he is a creator of moneytoolbox.com. Now, three takeaways from this interview that I think uh, really stand out. One is that J.D. talks about the action steps, the specific action steps that he took to get out of $35,000 worth of credit card debt. What? Yeah, pretty inspiring. And then he talks about his biggest financial failure, which isn't the $35,000 in credit card debt. It's something else, and it's worse, he says. And then he goes into the savings trick that he still uses. It's a habit, and it involves creating a type of 30-day list. He's going to talk about what that involves and how it helps him make better financial decisions. So without further ado, here's my friend and our guest, J.D. Roth. J.D. Roth, welcome to So Money. Great to have you. Thanks, Farnoosh. It's good to be here. I first... Uh, met you. I mean, I've known about you for many years as I've uh, entered into the financial blogging space, but I first met you a few years ago. You were a keynote speaker at the Financial Bloggers Conference. Um, It's an annual conference. You were at the very first of these conferences. You kicked Mm -hmm. it off, and the audience was packed because for many of us writers, financial bloggers, internet strategists when it comes to money. We we look to you as really the guy, the man that paved the way. I mean, I, you even say yourself, you you were blogging before blog was even a word. Right. And so I'm curious to understand kind of your from your purview, like how has the industry grown and changed and how have you grown and changed with it? Um, because, you know, we're talking internet. So even a year will, will can mean a world of difference. And um, Talk a little bit about your journey and how over the last, oh gosh, you said you've been blogging since like the 90s, so you know, right. 20 years, um, how you Oh my have, gosh, you're making it seem <laughs> like <that. laughs> You know, how, how has um, your journey changed and evolved and, and tell us where you are today? Well, you know, Farnish, when I first started out, uh, we, we didn't have blogging software. Nowadays, there's all sorts of sophisticated software that lets people uh, automate when they write for the internet, and you don't even really have to know what you're 
what the mechanics behind the scenes are. So when I first started, I had to like hand code all of my web pages. And uh, back when I started, what I was writing was more just a personal journal or diary than anything else. I wrote about, I always say that I wrote about cats and computers and comic books because those were the things that interested me. And then as time went on, uh, I started in 1997 just writing about random stuff. As time went on, more and more people were doing these web journals. And so uh, there were some smart people who developed blogging software that helped automate the process. So uh, I blogged for several years, six, seven years before I ever stumbled on the idea of writing about personal finance. And the way that came about was uh, I was deep in debt. I struggled with money. I'm not a trained financial expert at all. And uh, I wrote an article for my personal website sharing the struggles I had and uh, explaining what I was learning about money. And that article was so successful, it was shared around the young internet, uh, that I decided to start a personal finance blog based on that. And that's how GetRichSlowly.org was born. And Money Magazine named it the web's most inspiring personal finance blog. Time named it one of the best blogs of 2011. That's huge. I mean, that is remarkable when you think about um, not only did you start and run with an idea, but you stuck with it, and it became um, exemplary. And what a lot of people, even though you started it before there was WordPress and all these other blogging platforms, um, it, it is kind of, um, you, you really created an exemplary model for a lot of modern-day bloggers. How do you find yourself in the blogging world today? I mean, we have <laughs> social media. You blog, I mean, it's like, it's almost too much, right? It's it, it's there's <laughs> it's it, overwhelming. It's a crowded space. How do you differentiate yourself now? I mean, back then you were one of few. Now you're one of a million. How do you stand out? Well, uh, for me, uh, I don't so much anymore. Uh, as you know, recently at uh, the most recent financial bloggers conference, uh, somebody called me the grandfather of personal finance blogging, and I kind of feel like that in a way. I feel like this old guy, this old curmudgeon. And you are not, by the way, listeners. We're not talking Gandalf here. We're talking a very young, fit man. Forty-five. That's and, uh, it's, But forty-five is very old in uh, blog years, you know. So <laughs> uh, anyway, I I feel like the technology has kind of passed me by, and the uh, uh, the methodology in a way, because I stick to this very old school idea that people ought to s- tell stories, and I think that's the way I've differentiated myself. Uh, over the past decade when I'm writing about money and other things as well, is when I write about money, I always share it uh, through the lens of a story, whether it's my story or somebody else's story, because I think people relate to stories very well. Uh, Personal finance advice that's given in a vacuum, in in a book or on the web, wherever, it it can be very dry and it can seem like it, it doesn't apply to you. But if you can hear somebody else's story of success or failure, or just how they do things, it becomes much more real. And so that's, I think, how I differentiate myself is through the use of story. Well, I like hearing that because that's what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast because I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that um, we we lean to sort of like the quote-unquote experts for advice, but sometimes it's not it's not real world. It's not practical. It's not you. But I think when we begin to become vulnerable and candid and intimate about our experiences with money, which frankly can – almost feel like you're listening to a conversation you shouldn't be listening to. It's so personal. I think that uh, it's so healthy. It's so important. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that I just thought of is I think one of the reasons that the, quote, expert, unquote, advice 
sometimes falls a little flat is it's given in a vacuum. It's given as if people are perfect. And so you get this advice, and yes, this is the ideal way you should use your money, but the advice often fails to take into account that we're not machines. We don't make ideal decisions. We, base, we make decisions based on emotion and uh, psychological factors, so we're not always going to make the right choice. And so I think personal finance advice needs to be framed in a way that accounts for the fact that humans are imperfect. Mm -hmm. And irrational. And irrational. Well, and tell us, you've got some um, cool things uh, to uh, tell us about that you've been working on, mm -hmm. a course, and it's the Be Your Own CFO course. You started this uh, in 2014. How's it going? Uh, it's going great, actually. Yeah, this is a, a project. A, a friend of mine uh, produces a series of what he calls unconventional guides, so they're like uh, unconventional advice about different subjects, travel, uh, legal stuff, uh, all sorts of things. And he asked me if I would do an unconventional guide about money. And so I said, sure, of course. And this was an opportunity for me to take everything that I've learned about personal finance uh, through reading and writing and interviewing people over the last decade and boil it down and share it with people and frame it in kind of a, a different way. Uh, like you said, the, the title of the guide is Be Your Own CFO. And what I'm trying to get people to do is really take charge of their financial lives. Because I, I feel like too many people uh, leave their financial fate up to uh, the other people around them, their, their uh, real estate agents, their uh, financial advisors, all, all these different people, instead of just taking it into their own hands. And so what I want people to do is be more uh, proactive, I guess. Do you talk about maybe how to manage your time and your money? Because I think sometimes we outsource the decisions because we just don't have time to stop and think, or at least we don't think we have enough time. Yeah, uh, I do have a section in the Be Your Own CFO Guide where I, I uh, talk about how important it is to set aside, uh, first of all, some time at the beginning to get your finances organized. And then once you've got a basic structure set into place, to allocate an hour or two hours a week so that you're managing your money regularly and uh, staying aware of what's going on. Awesome. And the site for that guide, everyone, is moneytoolbox.com. We're going to put it on the site as well in case you don't have a pen and paper, which you probably <laughs> don't because you're listening to this on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get philosophical, J.D. This show really tries to, like you say, you know, unearth those financial stories that we all have that we can all relate to and then therefore we can all learn from let's get philosophical tell, tell us about your top personal financial philosophy a money mantra that you have that you've carried with you over the years that helps guide your money in a in a smart way well you know i've been thinking about this you shared the questions in advance and so i've been thinking about this one and i've actually got two so uh, the first one is the one that I've had ever since I started writing uh, GetRichSlowly.org, and that is do what works for you. And by that I mean there's no uh, one right answer to any financial problem or really to any problem out there. Uh, there's always multiple ways you can uh, solve the problems that you're facing. And so don't listen to anyone who tells you that there's just one right way to buy a house or to get out of debt or to invest in the stock market. There are multiple ways. And uh, sure, some are better than others for different people, but the most important thing is to find out the one that works best for you in your situation. And then uh, kind of related to my new uh, course, uh, 
I've really come to believe that people need to understand that they should manage their own personal finances as if they were managing business finances. I think we all get the idea that uh, a business needs to make a profit. In order to survive, businesses need to be profitable. Uh, and it, not just to survive, but in order to meet their, their goals. Uh, businesses have different goals that they want to accomplish. But a lot of times, we don't recognize that uh, the same principle applies to our personal finances. We all have goals. We want to buy a house. We want to travel. We want to have children. We want to get out of debt. In order to accomplish these goals, our financial goals, we have to make a profit in our personal life. So we have to earn more than we spend. I really like that. That is something that uh, you never really hear it in that context. Like, are you as a person profitable? You know, we yeah. always associate profit with business and commerce. And man, we should start doing that more with ourselves because I, I have a feeling it would really f kind of be a light bulb moment for a lot of us. Well, it it was for me. I, I know that that's one of the things that helped me turn my finances around because, you know, uh, in 2004, I had over $35,000 in consumer debt. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was in really bad shape. And uh, through reading the, these various personal finance books and websites and magazines, I recognized that, oh, uh, I've, my family has always had small businesses, and I know why they need to be profitable. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I should try to be profitable too. And sure enough, once I did that, I was able to turn things around. And I want to get to that turnaround shortly, but first, let's go down memory lane. Talk about <laughs> young J.D. Roth. Where did you get your, your, your kind of, I mean, look, we all make mistakes, but I feel like in our childhood especially, we learn right and wrong. Um, share one of those memories that's vivid still in your mind, a, a money memory that, whether it was good or bad, influenced you as an adult. Well, you know, we hear a lot about uh, scarcity mindsets and abundance mindsets. I, I was raised with a scarcity mindset. Uh, I was raised here in rural Oregon uh, by parents who didn't have a lot, of my, a lot of money. My father's family had never had a lot of money. They were just farmers that scraped by. His father was a janitor at the high school. And I remember my parents fought about money constantly. Uh, my dad was always angry at my mother for spending all of the money, and she was angry because he was constantly unemployed and couldn't keep a job. And even when they did have money, because there were times that uh, they would have windfalls, uh, that they would spend the money right away. They never saved for a rainy day. And so some kids looking at this and seeing how the parents fought about money and seeing the mistakes the parents made, they might make smart decisions uh, when they got off on their own. I didn't do it. I ended up kind of mimicking the same uh, kind of financial behavior my parents had exhibited. So that's, that's not a pleasant memory, but that, that's my greatest memory is uh, how my parents used, mm. used to fight about money. But you eventually turned things around. But before yeah. we get to the turnaround, I know I keep like, <laughs> I keep stretching that part out. But let's talk about a financial fail. And you already mentioned that in 2004, you found yourself in tens of thousands of dollars worth of consumer debt. Perhaps that is a, a, a classified financial fail in your mm. personal life. But um, what are you willing to share with us? I mean, something that you, uh, you know, was not your, an optimal financial moment in your life, but you learned from it and you moved on. Well, I'm going to, again, I'm going to share two. I'm going to share one that typifies how I used to think. And then I'm going to share one that shows that I still don't have it all figured out. Mm. So, uh, in 1995, my father died after a long battle with cancer and he left a little bit of life insurance. I think I got $5,000 in life insurance or something like that. 
And at that time, I had over $20,000 in credit card debt. If I had been smart, I would have paid off some of that credit card debt, but I wasn't. Instead, I went out and bought a new computer and new video game stuff. So here I am with a chance to knock off a quarter of my debt, and instead I end up spending even more money. And to me, that's an example of uh, the kind of failures that I used to ex have all the time. Now, more recently, I've, uh, I feel like I've really got my act together. I, I do earn a profit in my personal life, uh, but I still make mistakes from time to time. And one that happened uh, in 2014, because I was too much of a procrastinator, was I knew that I needed to get three different medical procedures done. And because of the way uh, my health insurance worked with the deductibles and all that, uh, it would make sense to get them all done during 2014. Well, I dragged my feet, dragged my feet scheduling them, and I wasn't able to get them all done during 2014. So I'm going to end up paying the deductible twice, basically, because uh, I, I, wasn't, I didn't think ahead. And that, to me, that's just an example of how even for folks who write about money and know what they ought to do, we still make mistakes sometimes. It happens to the best of us. <laughs> and I, you know, this is where I love how this podcast works is because this is really an open, safe place, the trust tree, if you will, the of, trust tree. Like <laughs> of sharing your financial wins and failures. Because guess what? We're all imperfect. It's, it's what we learn from our mistakes, right? And how we apply them mm -hmm. in our life the next time. You're only as good as your last financial experience. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it was good or bad, you know, it, time will tell. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, yeah. So many moment, JD. What's a time in your life where you had a financial win? I'm actually kind of curious how you got yourself out of that, that heap of debt. Well, well let's talk about that. So uh, getting out of debt was uh, a very tough thing for me. I was in debt... Let's see, I graduated from college in 1991, and I had the start of the credit card problem already. And I just kept spending more and more. I felt like spending on credit was a way to uh, make myself feel good, I guess. I was very emotional, like you said earlier, kind of irrational with money. And uh, that debt just built and built and built until uh, my ex-wife and I bought a house in 2004. And on paper, I could afford it, it or we could afford it. It looked... Everyone Very could afford a house on paper in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's be honest. And, um, but when it came time to like actually move in and to live with the consequences of the decision, uh, I felt like I was drowning in debt. And so it's one of those things where people hit rock bottom and they're finally ready to listen to reason. So friends had been trying to share with me. Uh, they, my friends could see that I was struggling with money, and they tried to give me some advice along the way, and I w hadn't been ready for it. But in 2004, a couple of people shared books. One of them was Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. And in Total Money Makeover, Dave Ramsey describes uh, the debt snowball method of getting out of debt. And I decided to give it a shot. I sat down, and in October of 2004, I drew up a debt elimination plan. And I remember I, had, I gave myself something like three years. I think it was 36 months, I thought, it would take to get rid of my $35,000 in debt, basically $1,000 a month. And it was going to start very slow and then just build like a snowball. And sure enough, I think it took 37 months or 38 months, something like that. But just over three years later, in December of 2007, I finally paid off the last of my debt. And that's because I gradually weaned myself from spending 
And at the same time, I tried to boost my income, found different ways to make more money. That's important. And I think that's a variable that gets lost in the conversation a lot of times. Too often we talk about save, 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 Mm -hmm. scrape, scrape away. But making money, especially now with the internet, it's a lot easier than it was, say, 20 years ago to find a side gig, to find a way to boost income, even just, you know, we're talking, you know, 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you go a little deeper and tell us about those strategies of how you got out of debt? Like, how did you find actually wean yourself off for the spending? And what kinds of work did you do to, um, to, to add to the debt? To, to pay down the debt. Sure. So uh, as I said, it was a gradual process. It's not like I went from being this guy who spent all his money to all You're of a get sudden. get rich just... slowly, man. We get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I had to make gradual changes. And so at, at first, for example, uh, I spent a lot of money on books. I, I love books. I love comic books. And so I was spending a lot of money on this stuff every month. I, I was spending over $200 a month on books. To start, I said, okay, what if I only spent half that? What if I only spent $100 a month on books? And so I made that change, and I was able to make it work. And so I said, well, let's try spending half that. How about $50 a month on books? And so I just gradually reduced how much I was spending on books. And eventually, I even uh, realized that if I didn't go into bookstores, I wouldn't buy books. Or if I didn't go to Amazon, I wouldn't buy books. And so I just learned to stay away from the things that caused me temptation. Uh, if I exposed myself to temptation, I was basically setting myself up for failure, and I didn't like that. So that was one of the key strategies I used there. Uh, plus, also, uh, I think you, uh, I think you are familiar with the concept of conscious spending or mindful spending. Mm-hmm. This is something that Ramit Sethi from "I Will Teach You to Be Rich" has popular popularized, and uh, Paula Pant from "Afford Anything" also. And the the notion is basically that you give yourself to permission to spend on the things that are important to you, but you cut back hard on the things that don't matter. And so in my case, uh, right now, for example, travel is very important to me. I like to travel. So I make sure that I have a substantial travel budget each year. But at the same time, uh, my car isn't important to me. Uh, My clothing isn't too important to me. And so I cut back hard on these. I don't spend much on my car. Uh, I walk everywhere. In fact, later, uh, after you and I talk, I'm going to walk to the gym. It's about a three-mile walk, and I'll walk three miles back from the gym. And uh, I I make choices so that I can spend on the things that uh, I like. Now, as far as uh, the income is concerned, for me, there were a couple of different things I did. Uh, One is I'm a computer nerd, long-time computer nerd. So I I recognized that, oh, people would pay me to, like, help set up their home computers or to set up their home networks, or even some small businesses would pay me to set up their networks. So when I was getting out of debt, I, I marketed myself to people uh, to do that kind of thing. And at the same time, uh, I took extra jobs uh, so that I could make, like you said, an extra $100 a month or whatever it was. And uh, I figured out how to make a little bit of money uh, by writing online. And so all of these things came together. And uh, I was able to cut my spending and increase my income to create this gap so that I had this positive cash flow that allowed me to get out of debt. And I also, that's great. Thank you for going deep in in those areas because I think um, people are, I'm learning a lot. I'm sure listeners (laughs) have learned a thing or two. You also had a so many moment when I believe you sold Get Rich Slowly, right? Oh, yeah. And I'm very fortunate in that regard. Tell us about it. If so, you, um, can you share some details? Yeah, well, I can share. There are certain things that I can't share because I'm under a non-disclosure agreement, mm-hmm. but I can share some. Okay. So, 
uh, when I started Get Rich Slowly, uh, part of the reason I did it, I always say that I had three objectives. The first was to help myself get better with money. The second was to share what I was learning so that maybe other people could get better with money. And the third, and this was kind of an afterthought to be honest, was to make a little bit of extra money to help me get out of debt. And so when I started Get Rich Slowly in April of 2006, uh, I put ads on there and I made a few cents a day, or it was about a buck or two a day I think at the start. But that grew until it was like twenty or thirty dollars a day, and then after about a year, it was two hundred or three hundred dollars a day. That's the math is not working out there for me. No, it was about two hundred or three hundred dollars a day. Uh, it was making around five thousand dollars a month, I guess. It was making as much as I was making from my day job, so I quit my day job to focus on get rich slowly full time, and I, I built the business up so that eventually in two thousand nine, I was able to sell it. And uh, I was able to sell the business for, uh, or the website for a, a sizable amount that's really been a, a blessing, I guess, because it's allowed me to pursue all sorts of other goals and to continue writing about money uh, in a way that I might not have otherwise been able to do. So inspiring. And uh, I'm sure many people with blogs these days, they're hoping for an exit strategy like yours. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Cool. So. Let's move on and talk a little bit about habits. We both know that habits, mm -hmm. whether you're trying to uh, become more fit, whether you're trying to start a business, whether you're trying to save, is very important. Habits are critical. What is a J.D. Roth financial habit, behavior, or ritual that helps take your money from good to great? Um, and, and, and how do you what – to take us there, what, what do you do? What's the habit? Uh let me see. I've got a couple of different habits that I've incorporated. Not a couple of many different habits that I've incorporated over the years. Uh, I think one of the best habits that I've uh, developed is to challenge myself uh, whether I actually need to spend the money that I'm about to spend. So it basically comes down to asking myself, do I need this? Uh, because when I'm out uh, in the neighborhood uh, around Portland, I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, there are times that I'm tempted to spend money. And so if I didn't challenge myself, if I didn't challenge myself in the moment and say, do I really need this, uh, I would be tempted to spend spontaneously or impulsively, and I'd end up in a financial situation uh, that wasn't as good as the one I'm in now. Uh, some of this, again, comes down to conscious spending that I mentioned earlier, understanding what is important to me. I know that... Uh, travel, I want to travel around the United States, I want to travel around the world, this is important to me. And so when I'm out and I'm shopping, if I spend money on uh, a new sweater, for example, that's money that I can't spend on something that's more important to me, such as travel. So I guess uh, the habit that I've really developed is asking myself if this is really important to spend on. And is it worth taking from the travel budget to pay for it? Absolutely. It. Absolutely. Mm. What's more important to me, this thing or that other thing? Yeah. And it, it has to be conscious. It has, you literally have to stop yourself. I mean, do you find yourself sometimes lying to yourself? Because <laughs> <laughs> I try to be conscious, but sometimes, you know, you just, you just want it really bad. And yeah. It's really it, hard to not take it to the counter. Sometimes I just have to walk away. I'll find that I have something in my hands and I'm wanting to buy it. I'm like, what am I doing? And so I just set it down and I leave the store. Yeah, keep the uh, receipt. The other day I was meeting a friend at a bookstore. We were just meeting uh, to go for a walk. And uh, she was late and so I was browsing the bookstore and I noticed I had three books in my hands. I'm like, wait a minute, this is how I got into trouble in the first place. I don't want to start doing this again. 
Yeah, I do this. So with I sat a- the books down and I went outside in the cold and waited for her. And I know that it's even harder when you're online shopping, right? Because it's <laughs> like you don't have to wait in line, you don't have crowds, you just go, you buy, you shop. So what I do is I often, um, if I found myself on Cyber Monday, <laughs> getting a little too click happy and like getting on the mm-hmm. internet and click, 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 click. Soon I had like five hundred dollars worth of merchandise in my one cart at the store online, and I went away from my computer. I came back, just giving yourself five, ten minutes, right, to just like just get the adrenaline back to a normal level Mm -hmm. and I thought I don't want any of this stuff I really didn't want any of it it was just more that I was feeling like I had to buy it because it was discounted so much but the fact was I wouldn't have wanted this stuff if it was free you know I just thought you know it's what I have to do because it's like I gotta buy it's it's, I'm saving money (laughs) but no I'm actually spending money that I wouldn't have so I didn't buy it. it And I think that you're getting to a couple of things. So one of the aspects of my writing that I think is different than a lot of people's is I write a lot about the psychology of personal finance, and I know you do too. And again, this goes to the fact that we're human beings aren't perfect, and we're irrational, and we have a psychological aspect. And so I read a lot of the uh, journal articles about how consumerism works. And one thing that they found is when you buy the first thing in a store, when you make a decision to buy something, it's as if all the walls come down and all of a sudden it's easier to buy a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth thing. It's that first decision that's toughest. If you can stay strong and not buy that first item, you're going to spend a lot less than if you were to give in. Because once you give into that first item, it's easy to do a second or a third. It's a slippery slope. Absolutely. And another thing related to what you were talking about is what I call the 30-day list. One of the habits that I developed when I was getting out of debt is if I wanted something, if I was at a store and I was like, oh my gosh, look at this new uh, CD, for example, or DVD. I really want that. What I would do is I would write it down on a piece of paper. I always carried a pen and paper with me because I'm a writer. And uh, nowadays you could use your uh, smartphone. Uh, I would write it down and I would go, when I got home, I would add it to a list. I had this list and on the list, I would list the item where I saw it, how much it cost and what the date was that I saw it. And what I found was, Oh, and my uh, objective was I gave myself permission. If I still wanted it 30 days later, I could go back to the list and say, okay, uh, yeah, I really do want this. And uh, that was, then it was okay to buy it. But what I found is I almost never wanted these things 30 days later. It's just in the moment when you're in the store, mm-hmm. we have this impulse to buy. A good trick for kids too, what you just said. You know, I have a friend whose whole mission is to help um, kids learn about money and financial literacy for children and she had coaches parents on this she's like when your kids go to you and they're like i want this i want that i want the other thing have them grab a piece of paper make a list if they if they're not old enough to spell have them draw it mm-hmm. and revisit it and then talk about how they're going to maybe afford it and if there's no plan then they got to come up with a plan or you can revisit the list in like 30 days and chances are that eight-year-old is going to have – he'll have forgotten about, you know, the video game or whatever that he wanted. He's onto something else probably at that point. So mm-hmm. it's a good way to kind of delay the gratification and maybe not even have to spend it in the end. And I think that's a, such a smart way uh, to approach money with children. Uh, too often I think our efforts of financial literacy uh, come down to like these uh, rote skills – like this is what a credit card is and this is how it works and this is how you should use it. But mm-hmm. what you're talking about is addressing the psychology and actually working with a real world, 
I can't even say it, a real world situation. And I think that's so smart. Yeah, experiences are what we remember, not necessarily the fine print on the back of a credit card statement, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, JD, you've been so much fun. We're almost done here. We're gonna do some so money fill in the blank. This is where I, right. <laughs> I start off a sentence, you finish it, first thing that comes to your head, okay? Okay. If I win the lottery tomorrow, say 100 million bucks, I would? Invest in index funds. Right on. Low fees, no fees. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Mm. Uh, my high quality computers. Uh, I'm a Mac guy, I'm fine with PCs, but uh, I like my uh, MacBook Pro. I have a high quality Mac and uh, I spend a lot of money on it and I'm happy to do so because I spend my entire life on there. That's my work. Mm. My biggest splurge, something that I spend a lot of money on, and this, you know, aside from the MacBook, something that maybe is more regular, you know, it's like your, your kind of your guilty pleasure. Well, here, uh, it's almost an embarrassing thing to admit, but <laughs> I've been pretty public that uh, I like wine. So uh, I guess I spend, my splurge would be alcohol. Uh, my girlfriend and I belong to a couple of wine clubs here in um, Oregon's Willamette Valley, and we like good wine, good food. Right on. My parents are a part of a wine club out in uh, California, and when I was visiting them, it was wonderful because they pay, the only thing they have to do is buy six wines a year, mm -hmm. and then they get free membership. They get to come. There's You can picnic outside. You know, There's no fee for that. You can bring your own food. It's just a lovely way to spend the afternoon, and it's the, you know it's a year-long option for activity and it's something that you know it's it brings the family together i'm all for it yeah well we enjoy it kim and i uh just this last weekend uh we were driving through the small town where one of the wine clubs is it's the champ the uh sorry sparkling wine club that we're a member of mm -hmm. and so we stopped by and we had forgotten that one of the benefits of membership was when we stop by we get to taste for free and so we got to stop and spend an hour just chatting and and uh enjoying our each other's company while we drank some good sparkling wine. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Oh, wow. There's so many things that I wish I had known, Farnoosh. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, I think I wish – oh, here's one that I, I know I wish I had known, especially over the past decade, and that is money is not the source of happiness. Money can't buy happiness. It's true that uh, wealthier nations tend to be happier than poorer nations, and there's a certain level of uh, financial security you need in order uh, to not be at risk for, uh, I don't know, health crises and, and so on. But once you reach a, a certain basic level of income, uh, having more money really doesn't increase your happiness that much. And uh, now that I've reached a state where I'm actually financially independent, once I reached that state, it became very clear that I am responsible for uh, my own happiness and I always have been. And I just didn't – I did, hadn't realized that. Mm. Uh, you just can't buy happiness with money. That's not how it works. Totally agree. And I think that the figure that Princeton's researched is about $75,000 a year. After that, happiness levels are not um, – have nothing to – are not correlated with income. And finally – I'm J.D. Roth. I'm so money because. Oh, my gosh. I'm so money because I don't have an answer for you. That's no good, is it? 
Well, here, here, let me rephrase. So people are like, what does that mean? I'm so money. Well, I like to think of it as, you know, I'm a financial role model because, or I'm. All right. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Uh, I'm so money or I'm a financial role model because I am open about my finances and I share my stories and I help people see uh, that the road to success includes some bumps along the way. And we appreciate you for that transparency and for your stories. And we are definitely going to check out moneytoolbox.com where we can find Be Your Own CFO. Um, congratulations on on that. And we wish you a lot of success this year. I know you have a lot of travel plans. We hope, you mm-hmm. hit, we hope that you get to as many places as you want. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. This has been great fun. My pleasure. Thanks, J.D. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about J.D., visit his website, moneytoolbox.com. His new guidebook is called Be Your Own CFO, and we have all of the links for where you can find J.D. at somoneypodcast.com, and you can also locate the transcript and the comments from this episode and all other episodes on the site. And I want to continue hearing from you. My gosh, I love your tweets. I love your reviews on iTunes. I love your comments on somoneypodcast.com. But most importantly, I want to hear about what is on your mind. What is your biggest question about money, work, life, a guest? Don't be shy. Send your question. Go to somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh. Send your question, and I will take a look at it, and I will very much consider it for an upcoming weekend episode of So Money. So thanks for tuning in. And uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And I hope your day is so money. 